0: Hello everyone and welcome to the fifth episode of Chain of Thought, the podcast of the Centre for International Development at Northumbria University. My name is Sarah Peck and last time on Chain of Thought I had the pleasure of chatting with Inga Buduin about my research and now it's my turn to be the interviewer and I'm really excited to be continuing the chain today with my interviewee Rune taluk and really happy that Rune has agreed to join me today. Reem joined Northumbria University in 2020 as a Vice-Chancellor's Research Fellow at the School of Design and Centre for International Development after completing her PhD at Newcastle University. Her research draws on multiple design methods to investigate how technologies and design methodologies can be used in humanitarian contexts. She's conducted research in the Middle East, Europe, and Australia on the role of technologies in improving refugee and asylum seekers' health, resilience, and security. Um, so, welcome, Reem. It's great, great to have you here today.
1: Hi. Great to be here.
0: Lovely. Okay. So, let me start by asking you um, a little bit about. your your sort of areas of interest. So it seems like your your broad area of interest is exploring how technology and design methodologies can be used in humanitarian contexts. Um, And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about how you became interested in these areas. Yeah, sure. Um, So in 2015,
1: I was completing my master's in public health at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. And at that time, Lebanon was, and it still is, hosting a large number of refugees. So all our projects, activities, the research of academics was very much focused on humanitarian context. Um, In many ways, my education was provided by activist academics that really highlighted for me the value of community-based research as acts of resistance. And that is the lens that I take when designing uh, technologies with refugees. And it was during that time that, I'm sure you know, the humanitarian system turned to innovation um, as a way of responding to the several challenges and the funding crisis that the system was facing um, so while I was working as a graduate assistant at the Center for Research on Publi- um, Center for Research on Population Health the opportunity arose to work on a project that was at the intersection of public health and human computer interaction and I guess I just took it from there and, and extended my research to not only designing and deploying humanitarian technologies but also to ask how we do design and how the way that we do design design interplays with our relationships with refugee communities and their visions for humanitarian technologies and futures.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh, that's, yeah, that's just, that's really fascinating. I'm really interested in that idea of sort of community-based research as an act of resistance. I don't know if you'd just be able to speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I think one of...
1: One of the things that are that is problematic in design and in human-computer interaction is it came from a very user-centered approach, a very commercial, uh, commercialized approach to designing technologies that users can use easily, seamlessly, and so on. But when you're working in humanitarian contexts, when you're working with um, Uh, with very highly social and politicized spaces we need to shift our lenses to think of the communities, the communal um, as well and the infrastructures and technological systems that we can design to support communities as a whole and for me I hold this really dear to my heart because From a cultural perspective, from also the colonial perspective, the aid system reduces refugees to individual beneficiaries or households in the way that we provide aid. And we see that in the digitalization of of aid. So for example, food aid, you receive it at a household level. But We are asking questions around well, how is a community coping with food aid? How would they want to manage their food aid communally? And I think this is where we start seeing the use of technologies and the redesign of technologies as an act of resistance.
0: Yeah, PhD um, at Newcastle. And that project and other projects you've worked on, we're working with Syrian refugee communities as you've talked about. And I wonder if you could just talk in a little bit more detail about that and the possibilities for technology in that very particular context.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I I think when when we think of possibilities with technologies, the possibilities are endless. Technologies develop so quickly and change so quickly. And for example, my research has identified how community radio shows um, that are facilitated through mobile technologies can be a means for refugees to access health care, overcome transportation costs that was a barrier for them to go to clinics in the context of Lebanon. And, and these technologies are being used to more effectively provide aid. So for example, the World Food Programme has rolled out the use of debit cards to provide food aid and unconditional cash assistance. And they're also trialing and um, Jordan the use of blockchain technologies. And so you can see that we're moving at a very fast pace in, in kind of developing and deploying these technologies. But for, for me, again, one of the biggest possibilities is for us to look beyond aid efficiency. So it's not about just making sure that the right person gets the right amount of aid in the quickest um, way possible. But when we were looking, when I was working with refugees to look at blockchain technologies, um, and how they can be designed differently, they, they pointed out that they want to, um, they when they have cash available to them, they pool that cash to buy food in bulk and benefit from discounts. And they pointed out that the systems don't enable it, even though blockchain technologies do have that capacity for us to create smart contracts that will help negotiate these kind of buying in bulk deals. And so, I think one of the key possibilities is theirs so to actually think of how we can design these technologies in a manner that embraces um, collective practices and in a way that would enable refugees to increase their agency within the aid system and when they're interacting on an interacting on an everyday basis with other actors such as shopkeepers. And so once we start thinking beyond aid delivery and start th- designing for interactions and experiences, we can start radically Shift, radically shifting that narrative of refugees as beneficiaries and households to refugees being active agents and communities that negotiate how they want to use their aid where do they want to use their aid and for me this is the most exciting and potentially transformative possibility of technologies
0: yeah, and I suppose it's I suppose I get a sense from you that it's Sort of more relational approach, so, uh, so, like you said, the community and the networks and and the connections and relations um, that refugee communities may have with with them. Um, yeah, with yeah, own and communities I mean, and 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 outside of that as well.
1: Yeah, because when when the e-voucher system was rolled out in Lebanon, it, it theoretically it does mean that refugees are interacting more with the Lebanese host community, with Lebanese shop owners, but. The way that was done meant that there was a power asymmetry between shopkeepers and refugees and that refugees were there to conduct a transaction. Whereas if, and, and I do that, we all do that, that if we have cash available, we negotiate. We ask about prices. We ask about, oh, if I'm buying this amount can you provide me a discount? But the system doesn't enable that. Um, and that's what we need to start thinking about, that that it's not, refugees aren't just an individual receiving aid, but an individual that has capabilities to negotiate, capabilities to challenge um, the experiences that they're facing. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Um, and I don't know whether you're able to tell me a little bit more about the sort of, I guess the sort of praxis um, of your research. So, I guess the sort of participatory elements and working that sort of working with refugee communities in design yeah. innovation um my praxis is
1: very loose form um and I say that with keeping in mind that that design is anyways very messy and we do tend to divide it up into a clear narrative. But just like any other research, it's messy. But the reason I say lose form is because when I work with refugee communities, I first start out with designing with them how we're going to do the design work. So rather than going in with, which are very valid methods and tools, Um, and saying this is what we're going to use, I go in sometimes with different things um, and discuss with them, right, if we want to kind of explore this, which tool would we use? How would we change that tool? And and that practice has meant that participants have, they integrated a lot of the design work into their everyday social activities. So, um, one group of refugees said, well, we meet for coffee every day at this time, so we can do it then, Um, and it did create a safe space, a safe space that we're all comfortable, so I, I always give this example, um, and, and, and it doesn't fit within the clean-cut Silicon Valley design workshop um, vision that people have, is that many times we'd be doing the work and some women would be threading each other's eyebrows, um, we'd be having, like the children would be coming in and out for food. Um, and, and that is an essential part of my praxis in that it is designed with refugees and, and, and speaks to how they talk about things, how they innovate, how they design and what they count as design as well.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like very much embedded within sort of ordinary everyday yeah. life, and life experiences as well. Yeah. From those examples. Um, yeah, That's really fascinating. And tell me a little bit more about what you're working on at the moment then um
1: so last year has been difficult work-wise um with covid but also i do want to take a moment to talk about um The difficulty in being able to do the research and to engage both in my practice and my reflective process um while not being able to spend time in lebanon um surrounded by the foods the smells the communities that i usually work with and think with so that's been really challenging and then on top of that um while we've been dealing with COVID, um, academics and collaborators in Lebanon um, have been coping with a lot of other stressors. So the country's experiencing an economic collapse and over a year of protests. And so academics that I'm working with only have one to two hours of electricity a day. They are working from their cars as they queue for five hours for fuel. And they've been working while still dealing with the trauma of the Beirut port explosion. So, This is when I always say that it's all right for us to slow down. Um, And so the last year, my work has been focused on supporting my collaborators through grant writing, through pushing papers, through publication processes, um, just so that there are things that I can do that they can't do. And I always tell them, you want a quick literature review? I can do that. I have electricity, I have internet connection. And and again, the reason I want to mention this is that even if we here in the UK are going back to work as normal, and you can't see it, but I do have the quotation mark. And, um, it doesn't mean that our partners and collaborators are, especially when we look at the vaccine distribution around the world. And so we, I've taken the approach of slowing down and supporting them because at the end of the day, it's them that have built the infrastructure and the knowledge base that has enabled my work and career. Um, so that has been one of the priorities for my last year. Um, some of the other things that I have been able able to do and been working on is I've been exploring with Sarah Ayemush, a PhD student at Newcastle University, um, and working with Lebanese diaspora publics and the socio-technical infrastructures that they're leveraging to support local socio-political initiatives in Lebanon. Um, I've also been able to get small pots of money to explore how we may engage in design innovation in Lebanon as the socio-political contexts are shifting radically as part of the revolution. Um, And on that project, we specifically draw from social justice and decoloniality because it's quite an interesting um, space, especially since it's been the revolution started in October 2019, and it still hasn't resolved itself. We still haven't seen major changes, but we still see continuing acts of resistance and the formation of decolonial cracks. Um, I've also finished conducting a desk review of how design and participation is framed within humanitarian innovation. Um, labs and services, um, and I use this as a means of interrogating the paradigms that are influencing design within the humanitarian space, and identifying how we move forward as a field of practice. And it's really interesting how the humanitarian system has maintained one predominant approach to design over the last five years, and radical approaches that are critical, like for example, critical design, feminist design, um, and, and those that, that like, and design justice that purposefully designed to counter structural inequalities and purposefully question the social political context in which we're working in, that hasn't kind of transferred to humanitarian innovation. And this is a disconnect that I hope to address in my future research. Yeah, yeah
0: that sounds that sounds incredibly important to we're supposed to be able to place the sort of humanitarian and design and innovation within uh, within the sort of wider socio-political context and how, yeah. how the two intersect. Um, from, from, the, from the things you were describing earlier about your work in, in Lebanon, there's obviously hugely mm-hmm. important socio-political contexts um, around refugees and refugee communities there. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I just want to go back to to your earlier sort of points you were making about your sense of distance from the communities and from Lebanon, and obviously the crisis crises in Lebanon and how that's impacting um, the people that you're working with, friends, collaborators, um, and that seems that really a part of that is, is sort of you critically reflecting on on your position within the relationships with collaborators and other academics. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be really important to your work and I just wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit more about that and how that fits into your approach yeah um I think I'm very
1: very honest that it is I'm not even there and the situation is overwhelming and it really makes it hard to think. Um, and, and, and just to get over the anger and frustration to move towards thinking. So part what I've been doing is based on those on interviews with activists and public health practitioners, is to question how did we do our design and research work before? And now that the revolution has opened up a space where academics can be more critical of the government, where we don't have to follow the same pathways, Um, to do research and to do design well how would we do it differently and also kind of thinking well we have the revolutions leading to a lot of different social and political rhetoric and how how do we sit with that how do we work with that so one of the examples um, that I had conversations with activists about is that a lot of these activists are starting up um, new political parties that will run for that are hoping to run for elections in 2022, and and when we we're discussing their agendas around refugees, they're saying, well, we're we're focusing right now on Lebanese marginalized communities. Um, which is fair enough, but here we start seeing this. This, or this question comes. Well, are we opening up a space for horizontal violence when it comes to our relationships with refugees, um, and how do we address that? Um, and also, part of the revelation is that people are now more overtly looking into local NGOs, where their funding is coming from, and these local NGOs run clinics and and and, and, and healthcare clinics, and and. And it is part of the this the sectarian clientelism that the current political elite have used. So again, stopping and asking, well, how do we work with healthcare clinics? And what healthcare clinics do we work with? And and how do we work with the resistors within those healthcare clinics that are also raising these questions? Um, So a lot of it has been pausing and rethinking how we're doing things and how we've done things and, and, and kind of identifying what are the cracks in the system that are growing into fissures that we can work in.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose just turning sort of to that sort of critical reflection um, to to sort of the UK, um, I know you're also very committed to addressing racial inequalities in higher education. Um, you've been awarded a Vice Chancellor's Diversity Fund grant to conduct workshops with students and staff in an effort to reimagine um, a more racially equal university. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. Um, So the issue of racial inequalities in higher education is something I'm very passionate about and having experienced it firsthand as a woman of colour and also being one of the few go-tos that students talk to about these things, it it really has, has kept it, not that I could ever forget, it kept it at the forefront of my mind and my work. And and we know that students of color are less likely to progress to do PhDs. We know of the grade gaps. And if you ask a student of color about their experiences at university, they would tell you about having experienced or known someone that has experienced microaggressions and racism. So we know it is there. And so rather than focusing on procedural and disciplinary points of inquiry, which have their own issues and have their own problems, and I think there's been a lot of data, there's been a recent documentary about students have bad race complaints and how the complaint system failed, them. Um, I wanted with that grant is to adopt a creative futuring approach in which we collectively imagine and articulate the futures we want for higher education that are racially equal. Um, And the project should start recruiting towards the end of this month and hopefully our visions for the future will inform Northumbria University's race charter initiative as well as other activities that go that go beyond the processes and procedures, but the culture and what what the university as a place means um, and could be for people of color.
0: Yeah, obviously hugely important and, and yeah, we really, Brilliant to to find out more of, of when you've when you've moved through when you've moved through that project, and I think, like you say, the sort of those multiple scales of the sort of processes and procedure, but also the sort of culture and those those everyday more everyday relations as well. Yeah, um, definitely, um, definitely. Yeah. oh Yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating um, talking to you. I've they had so many questions. I'm sure we could go on, <laughs> um, but thanks so much for joining. Um, uh, thank you so I'm much. Look forward to hearing more about all of this work that's going on in the future my final question then is um is your reveal who will you be interviewing for the next Chain of thought podcast so i
1: will be interviewing stephen taylor
0: ah okay so So we will all look forward to that as well um, thanks to everyone listening today um and we really look forward to hearing me interview stephen in the next podcast in the series thanks again thank you so Great much
1: for having me sarah thank you so much for having me thank you bye